Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future is one of the longest-running writing competitions in the world, now celebrating four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Owen Hubbard. I also want to let you know that the Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. I'm here at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs, surrounded by a veritable plethora of authors. One author whose writing I really enjoy is David Weber, the creator of the Honor Harrington series. And rather than going, we're going to take advantage of this podcast to delve into um, various things that I discovered going through his, his bio. So rather than just talking about that, I'm going to welcome you, David. Thank you. And like I said, this is Writers of the Future, and so it's about, you know, helping writers on what they have to do. And I know you've done that a lot. And it's, it's from my research, you know, and reading the Honorverse series, it's, um, it's an important thing to you. So basically, I want to delve in how you evolved into a best-selling author that you are today, because nobody looks at you prior to being them learning about you as a best-selling author. They found your book and they're like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, I, sp- I sprang full-blown for the brow of Zeus <laughs> as a best-selling author. Yes, that, that was me, yeah. Um, all right, let's go back to why I write at all and why I write science fiction. I've always loved the written word. I've loved the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell people, and I think this is true, it needs to be understood, nobody can make you a storyteller. You either are a storyteller or you're not. You have to have that urge. It has to be there if you're going to succeed at this. What other people can do is give you the tools to be a better storyteller. Nobody can create storyteller in you any more than they can create imagination in you. But just like they can kill your imagination, they can kill your storytelling joy. Uh, I think of, I use Harry Chapin's song, Roses Are Red, as an example of how to kill someone's imagination. You can do exactly the same thing to somebody's need to tell stories. Okay, so here I am. I'm 10 years old. I've broken my arm. Uh, I can I say, grew up in the country. Um, I've read all of the Black Stallion novels. I've read all of the Arthur Ransom novels. I've read, you know, I've read all of the You Were There at the Battle of Lexington Concord novels. And I am desperate for something to read. So I wandered to my father's bookshelf. Now, my mother uh, was, uh, at that time, she was teaching college English. She went on to own and operate her own ad agency in Greenville, South Carolina in the 70s, which was, I submit, a might odd for women to accomplish mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and my dad was a blue-collar boy from the south side of Chicago uh, who went into business management. Mm-hmm. But he was the one who really taught his kids to read for pleasure. My mom really did Okay. And he read science fiction. He had the entire, uh, uh, was it World Fantasy Press hardcover of uh, E.E. E. Smith's works uh, in autographed numbered editions. The autograph really? for the final uh, Children of the Lens went to a page and a half of a handwritten note from E.E. E. Smith because he'd been there for every signing at the bookstore in Chicago where he was buying them. Um, so on his shelf was a book called Legion of Space by Jack Williamson. And that was the first science fiction novel I ever read. The second one was Genus Homo, which had been shelved right beside it uh, by Sprague de Camp and P. Schuler Mitchell, from which Planet of the Apes was stolen. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, you know. I'm just saying. Uh, but that was my introduction to science fiction. And from there, I went through E.E. E. Smith. I went through, I, w- I had actually read most of E.E. E. Smith before I really dived into the Heinlein juveniles. So I kind of came at it a little backwards right. in that respect. But I loved science fiction. Um, my true my true love was military history. And um, I, I anticipated uh, for many years that I would teach college history and write on the side. 
Uh, but when I was finishing up my master's work at Appalachian State University, I saw field uh, demographics of the field, and over half of the tenured positions were held by people who were 40 or younger, and the field was shrinking every year with endowments going to political science and whatnot. So instead, I came home to Greenville and took over my mom's uh, small ad agency. Um, she had retired to look after her mother, my grandmother, who died at 101 and a half. Wow. Um, and I did that for about two years before I sold the first novel to, uh, to Bain Books. Now, I had supported myself as a writer from the time I was 17. I wrote, um, advertising copy. I wrote, uh, newspaper stories. I wrote travel articles. I helped with, uh, HUD reports on barriers to housing. I did. Wrote just about everything wow. that you could use words to that's, write about. That's a serious dedication to be yeah. able to write HUD reports. Well, it's a, yeah, well <laughs> trying to make them interesting is the fun part, you know. Um, but um, so all of that. Oh, and I was also a uh, uh, paste-up artist, which is a lost skill thanks sure. to computers. And I was also a typesetter, which is a lost skill. Yep. So uh, I am one of the world's last trained linotype operators. Back in 2K, 2000K, I was ready. Okay, When all the computers crashed, I had to bring back the linotypes. I had a career to fall back on. But that's how long and how intimately my life has been entwined with the written word. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, my mom, who didn't read for pleasure, was also my editor, my my mentor for for learning to love and use the language. She always said that of her of her children, that she expected that I was the one who might be able to do it, make it as a professional writer. Um, Well, that's good. Well, I have to say that my uh, younger brother is a superlative potter. And that my sister, Kathy, is one of the top handful of hand weavers in the entire country. So we all, we, all three of us went and did kind of weird things, you know. But, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm working in the ad agency. I'm also doing some uh, war game design on the side. And I was working with a game system, uh, Starfire, out of uh, Task Force Games in uh, Amarillo, Texas. And I had designed a module for them while I was in graduate school. Uh, well, actually, I designed an entire rule subset for them, a strategic set of rules for what was otherwise just a tactical game. And then I walked around with a ruptured appendix for 11 days. Unknowingly? Uh, oh, yeah, I had no, trust me, if I'd known it was in there, I would have done something about it sooner. I thought I'd picked up a little bit of food poisoning, and when I stopped throwing up, I thought, good, I'm over it. Nobody ever told me if it's an appendix and you stop throwing up, that means it just ruptured, so do something about it, you know. Um, and when I started falling out of chairs, they said, well, we should probably take you to the doctor. And he's like 40 minutes after I, the, the, um, uh, the GP saw me, uh, they're wheeling me in for surgery and I lost, uh, my appendix. I had a grapefruit sized abscess. I had peritonitis. Uh, my spleen went away. It was fun, you know, and I was a little distracted by all that, you know, (laughs) and that was the point at which the game was, I was supposed to be doing the play test on the game. And so I told them and they said, Oh, don't worry, we'll do it. So they did it, which means that the game got published with two alternate sets of mechanics for a critical issue in the game because I hadn't made my mind up which one would work better yet. So they just published it with both of them. So this fellow named Steve White in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, was trying to get them to explain which set it should be, you know, kind of thing. Um, And he sent letters and they didn't respond and so forth. And so finally they sent one of his letters to me and it began more or less, if all you can produce are hack games, why don't you just admit it, you know, kind of thing. You had to know Steve to know his own inimitable style. Hmm. Um, And I sent back a letter to him that said, uh, sir, name your friends. My second shall call upon them on Thursday next. I trust pistols will be satisfactory. And that was the beginning of our friendship. That was also the kernel for my first novel, my first published novel, which was Insurrection, a collaboration with Steve, which was never planned as a novel to begin with. We were just exchanging short stories wrapped around a game that I was designing. And I realized when we were up to 285,000 words that we had a novel here, actually. We probably had two novels, but we were young and, you know, 
Uh, so I took a hundred thousand words out of it before I, I thought, yeah, that's good. I've cut it by a third. It didn't occur to me that 185,000 words for a first novel was a little bit of a big bite for most publishers to look at. In the meantime, uh, Del Rey had rejected my first novel that I'd submitted, uh, which, uh, by the way, was published not too long ago as Sword of the South, and I hope somebody at Del Rey is unhappy about the fact that Bain published it instead of them. Was that Lester that specifically? No, it was not. Okay. Uh, it was no, it was not him. <laughs> uh, but um, the um, the I, we submitted the book to um, Avon at that time. Um, and uh, it was a while before they realized they had it, despite the fact that I was poking them with inquiry letters every month. And John Douglas read it, and he loved it, but it was too long. The front desk wouldn't let him buy one that long from an unknown author. So I worked with him for over a year uh, trying to shorten it. We got it down to 135,000 words, which, bearing in mind that originally it was 285,000 wow. words, that's a major reduction. Um, and the front desk still wouldn't let him buy it. The suits wouldn't let him buy it from a first novel, for a first novel. So he told me, he said, I feel terrible about this. You've worked on it so hard with us. He said, look, but I need you to withdraw it. You can't take anything else out without really hurting it. And we all love it. We don't want that to happen. So take, you know, withdraw it, submit it to somebody that does military science fiction uh, or more of it, okay? Tell them that the only reason I didn't buy it was that the, the suits wouldn't let me and that I want them to call me so that I can tell them that myself, okay? As rejections come, you know, they, they don't get much better <laughs> than that. Fact. <laughs> so I submitted them, I submitted manuscript to Bain Books, which at that point was, gosh, let's see, they're coming up on their 40th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. And this is the 35th anniversary of their buying the book. So I've been with them at this point. Well, it's going to be close to 36 because of the point in 89 that they bought it, mm. if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so I submitted it to them, and about two weeks later, I get a call. This absurdly young voice on the other line says, hi, this is Tony Weisskopf. I'm with Bain Books, and we'd like to buy your book. And I said, good. And she said, don't you want to know how much? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we. I want to get it published. You know, we we can work. Um, so they so they bought that one, and by the time it was published, they had also bought um, the Apocalypse Troll, uh, Mutineers Moon, uh, and Insurrection. Uh, so Jim got those three for first novel prices, which was good for him. Mm -hmm. But it was also good for me because with four of them, you know, in the bank, I actually went full-time professional writer one year after my first novel came out. And then what was it like between writing your first and then actually getting that? So what was – so the, when you first wrote yeah. something to when it got published, what was that – that well, okay. I sold the I sold the to them in eighty nine, and I think it came out in ninety one. I'd have to check the copyright date to be sure. And the point that you were starting to become that you wanted to become a writer to the point where you well, okay. Sold. Well, what had happened was that when I realized I wasn't going to be doing the college professor thing, yeah, it had always been in the back of my mind that I would do the the writing thing instead, but I hadn't. All right. I warned you ahead of this interview. There is a, a line that um, John Paul Jones used in a letter to Ben Franklin. Um, and it's something that I think people who want to be writers should bear in mind. And it, it, the quote is basically, it seems a law inflexible that he who will not risk cannot win. Or the way that I put it in workshops is the only way to absolutely guarantee that you will never be a writer is to never take the risk of failing to be a writer. You have to be willing to take that opportunity to fail. If I had been more focused on, on writing as opposed to teaching and so forth, and if I had had the nerve to fail, I could have been published 10 years before I was. With all, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, my, the writing skills were there, the storytelling skills were there. They really were. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if I'd been willing to, to, to do that, Okay, to take that chance then, I would have been published 10 years before I was. I'm fairly confident. Um, that I'm, I'm not complaining about the way it worked out, trust sure. me. Okay, but when I do uh, writing workshops and whatnot, 
I say, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, I could be a writer, I could be a writer. Okay, and you keep telling yourself that. And then one day you're 75 and you say, I could have been a writer. And you can't go back and get back into that bucket list again. They're just, you know. So if you are someone who believes that you that you want to write, that you want to tell stories, then what you have to do is go ahead and do it and see how well it works out. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things you can do that will enhance your 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 chances mm-hmm. okay um it is also sadly true that there are people who want to be writers who never will be because while they have the star- the storytelling urge they never are able to acquire the skills to tell that story in a way that works for an audience large enough to let them become a professional writer right okay um People ask me how you learn to write, and I tell them, and I'm not trying to be all zen when I tell them this, but my response is, how did you learn to walk? And they kind of look at me, you know, frequently. And the thing is, Tony Weisskopf, Tony is not only my publisher, she's not only my editor, she is a friend of 35 years, a very dear friend, and we have talked about a lot of stuff over the years. By the way, she's a, a very dear friend, too. From from us, she published a lot of yeah. of our judges and winners. But she, when she was first doing her internship, when she was going to school, she was in New York, mm-hmm. and her first acquaintance with Rise of the Future when she was doing her internship, she was at one of the Rise of the Future galas there in New York, cutting cheeses and making crackers and serving. What's, it's like they used to send her out to buy the booze when they were meeting in her, you know, in their grandfather's apartment, you know. Yeah. Kind of, uh, but. The the thing is, Tony and I were talking about it, and we came to the conclusion that writing is a physical skill, whether you think it is or not. Uh, you acquire it the same way that you acquire a physical skill. You acquire it by doing it, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason I say, how did you learn to walk, is that when they kind of look at me and go, huh, what is this, snatch the cricket from my hand, you know, okay. kind of thing. It's like, no, it's like when you're learning to walk, you fall down a lot. Every time you fall down, you learn a little bit more about keeping your balance and a little bit more about how to stand up again. Okay, so world champion uh, uh, athletes, marathon runners, learn to walk exactly the same way you did. All right? Yep. And they have developed a skill set and an endurance and a strength and a knowledge of how to pace themselves and whatnot that you've never been challenged to do. But they started exactly the same way that you did on that skill of learning how to walk. And that's how storytellers start, okay? You can be highly advantaged in having someone like my father who was a reader and shared the joy of reading with his kids from the get-go, and a mom who was a college teacher who, when you started writing, would, would, would keep an eye on what you were writing and encourage you in your word choice. Right. I was always an incredibly informal, formal writer. I used contractions in research papers and whatnot, and I would keep getting notes from my professors that said, so would say, this is really not the proper style for academia, so I'm only going to give you an A, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I said, that's kind of like, okay, I can go with it. I wrote, I wrote in um, the uh, 10th grade, uh, I got interested in the Third Reich, uh, and so in my world history class, uh, I decided I, I want to do my research paper on uh, the, the the Nazi Party and how it rose to power and how it fell. And my history pr- teacher is like, I don't know, Dave. You know, I said, Oh, let me. You know? So I said, Okay. So I, I handed in. It was supposed to be a twelve-page paper. I handed in a ninety-four-page <laughs> paper. <laughs> And he, he, he looked at me, he looked at it, he actually went and he actually read it, he gave me an A on it, but I will never forget the note on the front, and he said, a bit short, but I suppose it will do. <laughs> you know, and that was me, you know, yeah. and that's Tony, like, word count, David, word count. But, Pat, all that aside, when you begin writing, when you begin trying to tell stories in the written word... Okay, a lot of what you do will be dreck, okay? And you learn from the dreck, all right? Mm -hmm. You also learn from every writer you've ever read. You learn what they did that worked. 
and you learn what they did that was really, really a bad idea. And as you develop your own toolbox as a writer, you're synthesizing your toolkit from what you've read with others and what worked for you and what didn't, and also just what you've done. And, and, and I have a file cabinet at home that is stuffed with short stories that were never intended for publication or anything else. They were done because there was one particular idea or whatever that I wanted to fool with and see what I could do with it. Um, and I plan on burning most of those over the next few years uh, because Tony found out they existed and <laughs> is planning on publishing them. And I'm like, no, you're not. She's like, well, you won't live forever. So I'm like, okay, I know how to fix this because they're not on a cloud anywhere. These are, <laughs> you know, kind of, so we're, we're working on that. Um, but the, the art of storytelling doesn't, I, in my opinion, sure, the medium doesn't matter to the art of storytelling, but the medium will have a different set of rules as you move from one to another. So that, for example, if you are doing novels like I do, which are kind of the classic, you know, here you are, words on a page yeah, that may be turned into an audio book or whatever, but it's essentially the way novels have been written for a long time. Right. Uh, that, that's really, it's one set of rules. If you're doing graphic novels, it's another set of rules. If you're doing comic books, it's yet another set of rules. If you're doing screenplays, it's yet another set of rules. Okay. But the constants of good storytelling don't change. Right. What changes is the way in which you address the requirements of good storytelling. And what good storytelling requires above all else is characters. Because that's what stories are about. Right. Characters. So you need to be able to create characters that the reader will care about. The reader doesn't have to like them. But the reader has to care about them. So it could be, oh, my God, I hope she survives and everything goes well. Or it could be, I cannot wait for this SOB to get his. But the reader has to be involved with them. Plot is secondary to that. But what is most critical to being a successful writer is your voice. It's the writer's voice that attracts, gains, and keeps an audience. Right. And that is the way in which you personally tell the story. Okay. Do you do it by getting inside the characters' heads and actually giving internal points of view at critical moments? Okay. Do you do it all by exterior view? Um, I, there's t uh, a friend of mine that I've worked with, uh, Tim Zahn, it took mm -hmm. me years to realize that I have never read an internal point of view from a single one of his characters. He makes it work beautifully. Okay, but I work with internal point of view very often, and I just I was astounded when I realized, you know what? I've been reading his works for forever, and it just hit me that I have never seen an internal point of view from him. Uh, so, like Frank Herbert was definitely that. Yeah, and the reason that I throw this out is to point out that there is no one one successful way to do it. Right. Every toolkit is unique, and hopefully every writer's voice is unique. And your voice as a writer is also a product of every reader, every, every book you've ever read. Um, and, but it has to be a synthesis. It has to be yours. If you write a novel because this is the way David Weber would write it, or this is the way that Steve Sterling would write it, or this is the way that, that uh, Eric Flint would have written it, or whatever, okay, no. Okay, you can be you can be inspired mm -hmm. by someone else's voice. You can see th you can see. Boy, I love what he did here. I love what she did here. Annie McCaffrey. Oh my God, I loved her books. Um, uh, the, the, the you Barbara Hambly. Okay, I mean you know you can be like wow. All right. But you can't be that person. Right. If you are that person, the best you're producing is a pastiche. And ultimately, it's going to fail. Okay. Now, it is possible that there could be a sufficient divide in time between the person whose style you're emulating and your own that the people who will recognize that you're emulating another style won't happen. I was recommending Andre Norton to somebody the other day. And they said, oh, no, 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 I, I, you know, I tried her, but so-and-so does it so much better. I won't tell you who so-and-so was because I don't want to embarrass that so-and-so. But... 
I looked at the person who had said that, and I said, you do realize that so-and-so is heavily derived from Andre Norton. Andre did it first before so-and-so's mother was born. Okay. I love Andre Norton. She was a judge, and I just oh. she's the one that got me hooked on fantasy. But I remember I had a conversation with her about the time that um, Crown of Slaves came out. Uh, we went to visit her, in, in, uh, and we took the kids, you know. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, Eric, she wasn't traveling because her arthritis was so oh, bad. Oh, no, it yeah. was bad. But Eric Wust, okay, because he saw the cover of Crown of Slaves before I did, okay? Yeah. And we dedicated the book to Andre. I hadn't seen the cover yet. And he said, well, you're going to be at Liberty Con. Why don't you take it to the book? I said, sure, fine. And I got it. And it's like the, the, the naked lady sprawled over the outside <laughs> of the ship, and the ship about to dock through her open mouth, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, you coward, you know, kind of. <laughs> but I did. I took it to her. I gave it to her. And I said, Andre, I want you to, I'm holding the book like this with the cover against my chest. I said, Andre, I want you to know, Eric chickened out. He wouldn't bring you this. So so here I am. And I put it down and she looked and said, oh my. I just turned it over. <laughs> we went right on with where we were. But the point is that, let's put it this way. My mother, who did not read for pleasure and who did not read science fiction, she spotted Andre Norton's name on a book cover, on, a, on the spine of a book on my shelf. And she said, that's my favorite author. She wrote my favorite book when I was 12. This is my mother, okay? The Prince Commands. Okay, but she couldn't remember the title. Sharon had to go and hunt it down for her. Yeah. But, you know, but very few people even are aware that Andre wrote that book, or actually that Mary Alice Norton wrote that right. book. Um, but so uh, I was talking to her while I was there with the book, and I said, I said, man, I have always you know, loved your stuff. It's going to be here. And she said, no, it won't. And I said, excuse me? She said, nobody wants to read it anymore. Okay? And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, uh, especially after the science fiction panel we did here the other day, I was thinking about Gordy Dickinson. I was thinking about Poole Anderson. I was thinking about folks that I read that a lot of people don't even realize ever existed today. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the way that the genre has gained acceptance and grown. For a long time, it was you know just the nerds mm -hmm. who read it, um, but in in a lot of ways, science fiction is the flypaper that conquered the flies, or the flies that conquered the flypaper, whichever way you want to go. If you look at the really big budget movies and whatnot, they all have right. this strong science fiction fantasy theme, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, somehow, science fiction as literature is still not quite respectable. Okay. It sure makes a heck of a lot of money. Well, yeah, it does. It does. But um, the, one of my favorite authors is Dean Koontz. Okay? And one of the things about Dean Koontz is that he has managed to defy getting hooked into a single genre uh, label. Uh, I love his uh, TikTok, if you haven't read it. It's fantastic. It's, it is it is hilarious in a lot of ways. Uh, his novel Lightning is a time travel science fiction story. Okay, and and you can just go through you know his his catalog, all the way to Odd Thomas you know which, uh, and and it's it illustrates my point, a point I like to make a lot, which is if you have the storytelling ability and if you have the tools, the type of story you're telling is immaterial. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I actually have uh, plotted out uh, at home uh, a uh, uh, military history uh, series that begins with the American Revolution and follows an American naval family all the way through the end of Desert Storm. Okay. Wow, so it's the equivalent of uh, Louis L'Amour's Second Land. <laughs> yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. yes. Um, and I would love to write it, and I will never write it. And I will never write it because people want science fiction from me instead so i'm in a way i'm kind of backed into a corner well the fantasy too but you know it's well my heart doesn't believe for you that you're backed into a corner <laughs> yeah but, 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 but i would i would i the other part of the other part of it is that i always knew i would never have time to write everything that i wanted to write right and i will be 72 in october uh so that time window is is narrowing and that's one reason why I. Well, I think your grandmother made it to 101, so you've got a few years ahead of well, you, I which I'm going so. to assert and not let you do anything else to naysay that. Thank right you. now, we've got a statistic that I'm operating on. Yes. Okay. So we have we have a ranging mark. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, but I think one of the things that I happen to feel, <laughs> the year Fred Saberhagen died, Fred and, Fred and Joan were friends. 
um, Roger's last name was a friend. I, I said, everybody's gone, but Jack Williams said he's older than God and still writing, but, you know, kind of thing. She said, ah, no, the old guard's fine. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you're the old guard. And I said, oh, no, I'll be the middle guard. <laughs> I am not the old guard. Okay. That was long enough ago that I could get away with that. Okay. But now, you know, I, I really have to accept that in some ways I am a member of the old guard. Yeah. Um, and it's a little scary. It's a little bittersweet. Um, it's a little, the recognition, not remotely that your best work is behind you, but that the bulk of your work is behind you. That can be a little, you know, a little. And I've had, uh, I gave myself a concussion in Atlanta. I face planted into a cement uh, floor. Um, I mean, totally face planted. Uh, and then took me about two years to get over that and get back to writing. I did two, I think, really good books, including uh, Uncompromising Honor in that window. Then I had COVID and spent uh, 10 days in the hospital and almost didn't make it. Um, and then uh, just, just this past November, I had COVID again. And one of the things that has happened out of that is I have been officially diagnosed with long-duration COVID. Mm. And in my case, it's the brain fog variety. And as long as I am in a conversation with someone or I'm editing or I really get pulled into the scene and I'm, you know, I've got hooks that keep me focused. But I have also had days when I just sit in front of the computer and don't get a single word written because I, I'm kind of spinning my wheels trying to get that first hook written to pull me into the scene. Uh, my average word count when uh, uh, for my total career, uh, when I'm beginning a novel, it's probably 1,000 to 1,500 words a day. When I hit my pace on it, it's about 5,000 words a day. And when I'm into the, okay, we're getting, this is getting really exciting kind of thing, I'll be seven to 8,000 words a day. Okay, now I'll still do 6,000 6, words on a good day. But the average over the course of a month is far, far lower than that. Mm -hmm. So my output is declining. What I'm writing is as good as anything I ever wrote before. But the amount that I'm getting written is, 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 you know, disappointing to me because of what I used to put out. Right. But in some ways that kind of dovetails with something else that's important to me too, though, because, okay, let me put it to you this way. One of the three greatest compliments I was ever paid as a writer came from Rogers Elasney at a small con in Virginia you know, Z and W come together in the alphabet, sort of. So we were sitting at a table together for autographing. And it was uh, um, uh, in Fury Born. I was Path of the Fury, had the, the original novel. Had just come out about a month and a half, two months before. So we're sitting there, and I have signed, I'm sure, every book I had on the East Coast at that point. And he signed, yeah, uh, there's a hiatus while they wait for him to bring more, you know, from the front end loader parked out in the park, you know. And he looks at me, and he says, uh, I finished Path of the Fury last night. I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, Roger Celeste, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, you know, hyperventilating. And I said, so what did you think of it? And he looked at me gravely, and he said, and I will never forget this. He said, I think it may be the best blend of science fiction and fantasy I have ever read. And I was 10 feet tall. I was covered with hair, man, okay, you know, kind of thing. And Roger, I had had car trouble, so I was stuck in Virginia for another week while while, while Volvo uh, demothballed the construction line in Sweden to build the timing gears for my 78 Volvo and manufacture and then ship them across the Atlantic by windjammer, you know, kind of thing. Um, and Roger was staying in the same house that I was staying in uh, for a couple of days before he flew back. And it was a house that was built before the American Civil War. Tin roof, thunderstorms, and we're sitting on the back porch. We got our shoes off. We got our bare feet out under the water, running off the edge of the roof, drinking beer. And Roger Zelazny is talking to me as if I had sold 30 books or he'd sold only 10. Okay. I mean, that kind of, and, and to me, that was kind of the model of where you're supposed to be. All right. Mm -hmm. So fast forward now, it's many, many years later. And I'm realizing that I have a set of skills that's perishable. 
okay, that in a sense, I didn't spend 35 years building them. I started building them when I was 10, okay? So I've spent over 60 years acquiring the skills, the tool set that I bring to storytelling. And they all end when I do, Mm -hmm. okay? So to me, and remembering not just Roger, but some of the other people that I've talked to, just especially him, because he epitomizes it for me. To me, that whole paying it forward thing is very real. And so I have attempted over the years to, to, to do that. Um, and I am being a bit more aggressive about it in the last five, six years because of where my age is and whatnot. Um, I will be doing uh, an online video workshop in multiple parts on character building um, that uh, uh, we are working on getting all of the details finalized for setting it up that will include video sessions, Q&A, and I think hopefully it will pass along some of what I've put together about how you build characters and what goes into building ones that work for the reader. But Which is, just to that, to that point there, you know, wanting to pay forward and it becomes important. When we first started the contest, um, our, our first contest director was, would work with one of our first judges was uh, Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last article he wrote that, of his, that he wrote was for Rise of the Future for the essay, but he called the uh, the director and said, "Send me the stories. I, I want to judge him." He says, "Well, they're not ready yet." He says, "Send me the stories now." And he said, "Well, you know how it goes. It has to go through AJ first, Algis Budras." Yeah. And uh, said, "Tell him I need them now." So okay, okay. So he got him, sent them to him. He judged him, and within the next day or two, he passed. He really wanted to, for him, it was so important what the contest does because it just, it really opens the door. Uh, Jerry Purnell. Yeah. The last thing on his bed stand that night when he passed was he did the judging for the stories. And I've got multiple, you know, Emma Caffrey, that was one of the most important things for her was at that point of her life was what she could do was ensure that the next generation was there. And as, you know, like you said, you're the... You're the old guard in the yeah. well mentioning mentioning Annie, you know, her whole Harper's Hall. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way that I visualize what I do. Okay. It's a craft hall. To me, the people who talk about literature, the people who talk about authors as opposed to writers, the people who hold their teacups with their little finger crooked properly, okay, they don't understand. Okay. I'm not an artist. I'm a craftsman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, craftsmen can produce art, but the fact that it's art is secondary to the fact that it's good craft. Right. Okay. And if you're going to succeed as a writer, you have to understand that differentiation. Um, if you try to make it art, conscious stylists defeat their own purpose. If the style detracts, if, if the reader is, is being sidetracked into, my God, what beautiful style. Yeah. Okay. It, now, there are people, and Roger was one of them, okay, who had that gift to create that style and use the style to kick the action along while it was happening. But you have to maintain focus on which is more important, the art or the story. Right. Okay, and when I say the art, I don't mean the art of creating the story. I mean the, this is going to be, you know, for one of, this is going to sound like I think everybody who feels that way is egomaniacal, and I don't. But you get to the point where I want to be recognized for my art rather than for my ability to tell stories. Okay? Right. And the people who can do both are incredibly fortunate, and we're lucky to have them. But if you want to break into this craft, if you want to become a member of the craft hall, don't worry about art. Worry about story. Worry about characters. Worry about... I said earlier that characters are what every story is about. And they are. Mm -hmm. It's the people we care about. Plot is just about what they have to deal with, the struggle that they confront. If you have good characters, you can make even a fairly weak plot really compelling to the reader. I tell people, and this goes to voice as well as characters, but I tell people that a a weak story that is strongly told will succeed where a very strong story that is weakly told will fail. 
And that's what you have to bear in mind when you're looking at telling the story, especially if you want to tell the story in a way that can be that that will give you admittance into the world of published fiction. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the when I, Honor Harrington was born two years before Al Gore invented the internet. Okay. I mean, that's people have to realize that's how long this series has been going right. on. And the craft has changed so much in terms of technology and, and so forth. When, um, War of Honor went to, I think, number four on the New York Times list. We shipped something like 65,000 covers, cop copies in hardcover. Okay, when um, Uncompromising Honor went to number one on a couple of the lists, we'd only shipped like, I think, 20,000 outside copies in hardcover. All the rest were the ebook sales. And that wasn't even a thing when I started, nor was self-publishing, nor were the indie publishing houses. So the, 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 the avenues for breaking in have changed a lot. Right. Now, I'm going to say something that is going to make me unpopular with certain people and say that, oh, okay, let me begin by saying that I have said many times that the great thing about ebooks uh, and especially about uh, self-publishing is that we get to see a whole lot of stuff we never would have seen before. Sure. The worst thing about it is we got to see a whole lot of stuff we never would have seen before. Okay. Four million on, on a report last year, yeah. four million books were published, and most of it is tripe. Yeah, pretty much. And 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 the thing is, okay, I'm working with Jacob Holo now. Okay, he is uh, he's. Uh, I think he is a fantastic writer with a huge future in front of him. Um, he is also a very good engineer with BMW. Um, and he had, uh, I think, five self-published novels before I asked him to co-author the Gordian Protocol series with me. Uh, and since then, we have done several books. He is going to be writing a trilogy in the Honorverse uh, sometime soon uh, that will be the life of Edward Saganami from, mm -hmm. from that series. I think he is going to be one of the outstanding members of the field. And he came up through self-publishing. Okay, I've seen other people who are self-published, and the worst aspect of it is their toolkit is stuck because they're not getting the editorial input that would push them to develop the skill set further. Back before my wife Sharon had her first spinal surgery, back in the days when she was a triathlete, she was a uh, lifesaver, she was a lifeguard, she was a uh, water safety instructor, uh, she was a synchro swim instructor, and she was teaching skills that could have life and death implications. Mm -hmm. And she said the thing that she always told her students was that practice makes perfect is only true if what you are practicing you are doing perfectly. Okay? And I have known of cases in which self-published authors, because they're published now, because they're out there, because people are buying their books, maybe in only small numbers, but they're buying their books, they have succeeded. Okay? And to to, to that level they have. But they continue to do exactly what they did with that first book without growing, mm -hmm. without uh, ingesting comments that are critical of what they did. Critical comments are one of the most valuable things we can have. As sometimes they're not made in ways that we want to hear. Okay. And ultimately, as a storyteller, you have to decide whether that criticism is A, valid, and B, whether or not you can react to it without destroying part of your storytelling tools that you already have. Uh, and sometimes you have to accept that what other people may see as a flaw is part of how you tell stories. And if you are succeeding by selling large numbers of stories, then you kind of have to say, yes, okay, that's a valid criticism, but I'm not going to adjust to fix it because I'll break something else more important in the process. Mm -hmm. But you need to be able to hear that criticism. The, the, I tell people that 
the the day that you stop honing your skill set and being willing to acquire new skills or polish one you already have is the day that you die as a writer. Everything that you do after enough, that, yeah. everything you do after that is zombies. Okay. Yeah, pretty much every established best-selling author that's absolutely 1000%. Yeah. Now and there but there is also there you can you can have the problem of being one of the problems that I think Robert Heinlein had with some of his later books which I for one do not think were as strong as a great deal of his earlier yeah. work is that he was so established that number one he could write whatever he wanted to write which is good for a storyteller at any point but he also had editors who were younger than he was, who hadn't been there as long as he was, and who were approaching this as, this is Robert Heinlein. And he didn't have to listen to them, and they weren't forceful about making him listen to them. I have told Tony Weisskopf, I, you know, I said, Tony, the day that I stop listening to you, don't kick me, call Sharon, and have her kick me, okay? Because <laughs> she'll do it harder and more often. And to me, that's important. Yeah. Um, you reach a point where you've earned your chops, where you say to somebody who is offering a criticism, well, I thought about that, but I don't agree with you, so I'm not going to do it. Okay. But there's a difference between that and not, not being told that you have a problem with a, with a given book. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or not hearing it when somebody tells you because they tell you so tactfully. Okay. You know, um, but that's, part of the ongoing the, the 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 for want of a better term the the nurturing maintenance of your craft okay right. the acquisition of your craft comes at a point where you have to be open to, to criticism you have to think about it i will tell you that the only time in which if you don't agree with the criticism the only time in which you should incorporate it into a book anyway is because the person who gave it to you is an editor who said i'll buy the book if you put it in and i'm not telling you that because you are prostituting your art for filthy lucre because if it's a first novel there won't be a whole lot of filthy lucre involved trust right, me right right okay but because that is how you get into the lodge that published title Okay, mm -hmm. it's it's a critic. That's why I didn't ask Tony how much they wanted to pay us for pay Steve and me for insurrection. All right, it's that critical first step to making it into the community where wonderful things happen for people, at least some of us down the road. The nature of what we do, in a lot of ways, is such that it attracts the dreamers among us. Right. And sometimes the dreamers among us are not the best rooted among us in terms of the sordid realities of how you do this and, and survive and not destroy your relationships with the people around you because you're vanishing into your cave and never coming out except to eat pizza. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, uh, my first marriage had, uh, had ended uh, about eight or nine months before I met Sharon. Okay. Now you have to picture this. Okay. She is the science fiction manager in a million dollar uh Walden bookstore uh in Greenville, South Carolina. She's five foot two, long red hair, blue eyes, really, really cute. And she has not yet had her first spinal surgery. So this is still the this is still the triathlon. So could she, could she, could she, could she know, Yeah, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. You know. Um and I walk in and I'm uh, about uh, thirty seven at the time. She's eight years younger than I am, so she's, you know, kind of thing. And I walk over and I'm wearing my biker's leathers and my boots and my black leather jacket and I have the braid down the back. I've got the flower headband on, you know, and and, and I walk over to the science fiction section. And I'm kind of going through I used to do this with Georgette Hayer romances too. I'd walk in and all the ladies would shrink away to either end while I would throw I'd say, oh look, it's a new imprint of Uncle Sylvester, you Sylvester or the wicked uncle, you know, kind of thing. And I'd walk out and they'd go, what was that? You know? And so Sharon comes over and she told me later, she said, I wasn't real sure what you were doing there because I thought you had to be able to read before they let you into a bookstore. <laughs> So she's recommending books, and I'm saying, I've read that, I've read that, I've read the other, I've read this. I didn't like him, you know, kind of thing. And finally, I look at her, and I say, I've, I've sold a novel, you know. And it's like, oh, look, I hear somebody in the back corner. 
<laughs> she was gone. You know? So the next time I came in, I brought her the manuscript. Um, and it was the beginning of a fantastic friendship that lasted for about six years uh, before I finally realized that I had to stop running scared from the first marriage. And and I proposed to her, and, and we got married. Um, but that was me. In, in, in 1989, you know, okay. uh, and I hadn't, she got me, as she likes to say, she got me invited to my first science fiction convention, which was Magnus Opus Con in South Carolina, in Greenville at the time. She got me invited back the next year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she, her bookstore hosted my first signing ever. Oh, that's uh, pretty where cool. I, where I got to sit between Roger Zelazny and, and Lois Bujold. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so they, I signed all of the copies of my book. Steve was there, too. We signed all the copies of our book that they had, and, 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 uh, and Roger and Lois were still signing when the bell rang, you know, kind of thing. Kind of put us in our place, young pups that we yeah. were, you know, kind of thing. Um, but she has been there every step of the way supporting me. In, in what I've done, whether it was so cool. friend or spouse, yes. And and I'll tell you the truth, Sharon genuinely doesn't understand why people love her the way they do. And I've tried to explain it to her, okay? But it's kind of true, like, truly loving people yeah. don't see that. They, they, they're always going out. They don't really yeah. see that she, somebody else could... You know, and I'm like, I'm like, honey, you know, if I were recording the conversations you were having with people, okay, she is great. I mean, we will be at a con and somebody will have a question that they want to ask me and she can tell they're like, oh, I really like David, I really like David, but I, I, I can't go up to him. Oh my God, what would I do? You know, kind of thing. And so they'll, they'll ask her a question and she knows the answer, but she'll say, I hadn't really thought about that. Let's go ask David and kind of drag him over. And, and then they find out, you know what? <laughs> David is as human as anybody else, you know. He, he, and I've had some of the same syndrome myself with yeah. authors whose work I dearly loved. Right. Okay, it's like, what would I ever say to them, you know, kind of thing. And I have, I have instances where somebody comes up and he says, oh, Mr. Weber, you're my favorite science fiction author in all the world, you know, kind of thing. And I'm trying to look over my shoulder and see which of the guys I felt that way about they're really talking to. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. When we have writers feature winners, we've had that where we've got like Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, Fred Pohl, all these yep. you know grandmasters of science fiction, and we have this meet and greet is one of the things that we do every 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 year. And so you got the writers over there, and they're just like, you know, looking over there, and then you just say, "Come over there," and you know, this is Jerry Purnell. Would you have a seat next to him? They go, "Mr. Purnell," or <laughs> Larry Nevin is still his favorite event, so he's there every yep. year, and people just like, ah. Oh, I haven't seen Larry in forever. I think the last time I saw him was at Dragon Con. But I will tell you that one of the greatest joys of my life was Mamelukes. Okay? Mm -hmm. I just, I happened to be in, uh, in Bain's offices in, in North Carolina. And uh, we were talking about we were talking about books that had affected us, you know, and an un unfinished series and what. And I said, the two that I always really wanted, would have loved to have finished, would have been to take H. B. Piper's Lord Calvin of Other When, and start from there, and and you know carry him out. And I said, but the other one, man, you know, I always uh, I always loved Janissaries, and I wish that Jerry had you know finished the series. And uh, Tony said, you, you would have liked to write in, in, in the Janissaries? I said, yeah. And she said, well. <laughs> she, well. Said, she said, we have Jerry's last book. It's about 50% completed. We have his notes for what he wanted to do with the rest of it. And Phil has been working on it. Uh, but how would you like to help Phil finish the book? And I was like, I get to help finish Jerry Purnell's last novel. And she was like, well, yeah. And she said, we could probably pay. I said, hey, we'll worry about that later, man, you know. <laughs> so that's how I met Phil, um, and, we, and we finished the book. And I have to tell you that Phil, the, from the perspective of writing fiction, the neophyte, had written most of the scene that concludes that book where uh, Rick is confronting the fact that he can't stop, that he has to keep going. He'd written that scene, okay, but he'd put it in the wrong place. He'd put it too early in the book. 
Now, where it was was a logical progression, but the problem was that he'd written the perfect scene to end the book in a logical place that was too early. I get it. So I took it and moved it to the back after they successfully stood off the attack and everything else. And I think that it it was incredibly powerful. It would have been powerful where it was in the first place, but moving it back to that point. And that is something that goes into that whole thing about honing your skills as a storyteller. Because it's not just learning grammar. It's not just learning word choice. It's it's having the feel for the, the pace of the story, mm-hmm. of recognizing. I remember the first, uh, the second of the March Up Country books that I did with, with John Ringo. John had come up with uh, three, I think four, very strong endings to the book. And he wanted to incorporate all of them. <laughs> I was like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. You don't do that. And, and so we had to work our way through it. But the problem was that he was the victim of his own strengths. Okay? But you have to, as the, as the storyteller, you mm-hmm. have to be able to recognize that this is what has to happen here, and that's what has to happen there. In the uh, Honor Harrington novel, when uh, I killed Andrew LaFollette in Mission of Honor, um, I tried desperately to write that book and not kill Andrew. I tried four or five times, and it wouldn't work, and I didn't know why. It just wouldn't work. Um, and finally, after I sent the book in, I realized, realized what it was. In the, the strike on the Star Kingdom, Honor loses like 90%, 98% of her family in, in, in Manticore. Her family in Beowulf is not it. But, um, but the reader had met virtually none of them, Okay. The reader knew Andrew LaFollette, had seen him since the the, the uh, fourth book in the series, uh, uh, knew how much he meant to her, knew how much she meant to him, etc. By killing him, by opening them to the pain that she felt in losing him, I also opened to them the pain of all the others that she had lost. And that was a critical component of how she was responding and where she was going. But I had, I could not have told you that rationally and consciously. I just knew that it had to work that way for the story at that point. And that is what happens. Brilliant storytelling will break you in to the field. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's usually unfinished brilliant storytelling. Okay, you have to be willing to listen and polish and 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 you know work on the skills, um, and if you do, and if you have that storytelling bug, and if you're willing to pick up tools from the right places and and incorporate what works, then you can succeed very very well as a writer. If you're not willing to do those things, then you probably never will. Good. Just one thing we would ask is so like for someone. Obviously, you're everywhere in all different bookstores, Amazon. What would you recommend as the first book to read if, to, for mine? someone being introduced to you? Uh, well, I would recommend Sharon's favorite book, Path of the Fury, which was then expanded into In Fury Born. Um, Path of the Fury was a standalone novel. Uh, there was a whole pre- uh, there was a whole backstory to it that I had in my head that had never been produced, and people wanted to know how they could where they could find Path of the Fury in hardcover. Well, it was released as a mass market paperback, so there wasn't a hardcover. So since I had the prequel in mind, I went ahead and wrote the prequel, and we bound it in one set of hardcovers. And I actually had a couple of people. I was just recycling the original book. Okay, the final book is two words shorter than exactly twice the length of the original novel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I would recommend that. That's that is the 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 novel and the prequel that Roger was talking about in in in, in Virginia. Um, and I would say probably if they're science fiction readers, probably my my number two recommendation would be uh, on Basilisk Station. And number if, one, right? That's the, that's the first book in the honor. Yeah, in the honoring series. Um, and if they're fantasy readers. I would definitely go with sword uh, with um, Oath of Swords. Good. I mean, I mean, because I'm in those genres. Yeah. And I have to say, one of the things I loved about Bane was that Jim Bane was willing to let me to do fa- let me do fantasy. He told me he said he said you realize every time you do one of these books, you're taking a fifty thousand dollar pay cut. 
because of the difference in sales. And I said, so? And he said, okay, I just wanted you to know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then we were off and running. Uh, and a lot of publishers would not have been that uh, accommodating. Yeah. But anyway, this has been great, and it's just, just what I wanted to get. I've got another 20 questions, which I didn't even – I suspect I'm that sorry. would happen. No, that's totally fine. That, that happens sometimes when I get really great interviews going, and just I get the first question, second question, then boom, it's – the hour's up. So that's great. Right. You're, you're, I did you're an amazing interview. That. You're I an amazing that. interview. So uh, thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast where you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899 and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So happy birthday, Carnation. And that doesn't show that consumers support. I really don't know what does. Writers and illustrators that feature are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged for four decades. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, David. Oh, thank you. Thank you.